Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Five. What? Oh, God. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast, joined by my brother, Jordy Long. This is, this is episode three of Fooled by Randomness. We're joined by Mark Ripito, Nassim Taleb. I don't know. Like, you just have to go listen to the other fucking episodes. You'll figure it out. This is episode three. We're going into it. Skewness. The essayist and scientist Stephen Jay Gould was once diagnosed when he was in his 40s with a deadly form of cancer of the lining of the stomach. The first piece of information he received about his odds of making it was that the median survival for the ailment is approximately eight months. The fr- Okay, so basically, I'm just not going to read that shit, but basically, okay, so this guy gets a stomach cancer diagnosis and the median chance of death is he's going to fucking die in eight months. But as he digs in further, he realizes that you either die in eight months or you survive longer than eight months. And if you survive longer than eight months, you typically live your whole life with it. And so he wrote this article called the median is not the message. But the point is, imagine, you know, you're sitting there and someone's like, yeah, you've got cancer. You're like, no. And you, they're like, yeah, the median time to live is you've got eight more months. You're like, no. But in reality, you're going to live till 75. It's just these fucking idiots don't understand math. And his point is that the concept of median used in medical research does not characterize a probability distribution. His point was that cigars cure cancer. God damn it. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I fucking, fucking I, even, I can't even argue with that. You know, Jordy was so kind to get me like a really nice cigar lighter that I now, and a cutter, I, and refills, three refills, like three giant refills because Taleb would have done the same thing. And so like, yeah, I think I should just smoke cigars every day, but not that. Taleb says, I will explain Gould's point by introducing the concept of mean using a less morbid example, that of gambling. I'll give an example of both asymmetric odds and asymmetric outcomes to explain the point. And so, okay, what he's saying is that like, actually, many people don't realize it, but the probability of success of certain endeavors, of certain investments is closer to that dude with stomach cancer who they said eight months, but in reality, he had 27 years left. And so Taleb's going to illustrate this. Asymmetric odds mean that the probabilities are not 50% for each event, but that the probability on one side is higher than the probability on the other. Asymmetric outcomes mean that the payoffs are not equal. So let's say that you've got a nice lady and she's got stiletto heels on. You put your wiener on the table. She's going to walk on the top of the table. Okay. You, if, if she doesn't step on your penis, you earn $10 million. If she does, she steps on your penis with, with stiletto heels. Okay. That's an asymmetric payoff right there. Because it's either going to be really good or really bad. But Taleb is another example. 
He says, assume I engage in a gambling strategy that has 999 chances in a thousand of making $1. Okay, so it's like, hey, 999 times you're going to make a dollar. And one out of a thousand, you lose $10,000. So this is such a good example because like, I think this puts it into perspective, like this is how a lot of decisions are. 999 chances you make a buck, one in a thousand, you lose $10,000. But if you really run the probabilities on that, the expectation of a loss is close to $9. So the expected value, someone gives you an investment and is like, hey, 999 chances you're going to make a buck, one chance you lose 10,000. Do you want it? Our intuition's kind of like, man, yeah, I'll play, I'll play for, you know, I'll play for like a hundred times. Yeah, I need a hundred bucks. But in reality, if you really look at the expected value on the decision, it's negative nine every time you play, even though you win the vast majority of times you play. The frequency or probability of a loss in and of itself is totally irrelevant. It needs to be judged in connection with the magnitude of the outcome. You know, even if there's a one in a thousand chance you get your dick stepped on with stiletto heels, you gotta really think that shit through. Here, A is far more likely than B. So it's far more likely you're gonna make a dollar. Odds are that you'd make money by betting for an event A, but it's not a good idea to do so. And so that's where like the rich fools you know, let's say it's different. Let's say it's not a hundred bucks, but let's say it's a thousand. And so you have somebody who's making a hundred thousand dollars a year and you look and you're like, God damn it. And, and, but they're idiots because the actual expected value of each of those bets is negative $9,000. And this is the wrinkle. This point is rather common and simple. It is understood by anyone making a simple bet. Yet I just struggle all my life with people in the financial markets who do not seem to internalize it. How could people miss such a point? Why do they confuse probability and expectation? That is probability and probability times payoff. Mainly because much of people's schooling comes from examples in symmetric environments like a coin toss where such a difference does not matter. And the odds in real life are even worse and less predictable than the one in a thousand chance of losing 10,000. So he even laid that out and it's like, that's a pretty crazy bet. You know, negative $9 expected value. But he's saying life is even, is, is way different than that. It's more complicated than that. Life's like, hey, you're probably going to make four bucks and you're going to, you, you could do that 5,000 times and you're going to make four bucks. But one time you're going to die. And like, that's actually how the probability of life is. And so if that's really the case, people don't think about that at all. They're like, man, I'm going to make, make four bucks it's what one in 5,001 chance. Like that's, I'll take those odds all day. Yeah. And so I think Taleb is trying to tell us that in life, the problem is we get fooled by the common answer, by the median outcome, by the most likely thing, by the most common thing that happens when in reality, much of our life results is based off that one big event. You know, she said, yes, the, you got that job. Dogecoin goes to $100. That Those kinds of things drive your life more than all of those little events that happen every day. And so, therefore, uh, it, but the problem is this actually relates to this black swan problem. A lot of times in life, we can't see that random outcome, that not random outcome, that one sm small probability outcome. We have no idea what it even would be. We can't even see it or we just refuse to acknowledge it's there. 
And so that's why this whole game is tricky. Because if you take out that one outcome, then the median approach actually works. If the, the guy who had cancer, if you take out the 20, live in the 27 years, actually the right answer was the bet that he would only live a few months. But life hides those one single big impact events. It's a tricky problem. Yeah, and you, you legitimately can't calculate that those those secret hidden events because you know it's it's not like 999 times you make a dollar one time you lose ten thousand it's like 999 times it's like kind of a little bit predictable and then one time like we don't know what the fuck's gonna happen like go and he calls this the rare event fallacy and so the rare event owing to its dissimulative nature meaning really hard to simulate so like think about how I could predict where I am right now in my job. Well, I'd probably have to take into it because I go into the office two days a week. I'm doing, re- I'm doing really well, but I'd probably have to predict like four years ago, I'd have to predict that COVID was going to happen and it was going to accelerate 15 years of social norms into two years. And now I am working pretty much hybrid, pretty much wherever I want. And only because like there... I would not have been able to do that if there wasn't COVID. But to predict where I'd be right now in my life, I can't, I would have to be able to predict COVID. So the rare event owing to its dissimulative nature, meaning actually unpredictable, like it's actually unpredictable, can take a variety of shapes. It is in Mexico that it was first spotted where the academics called it the peso problem. So a bunch of people were looking at this and they were, they were puzzled by the behavior of the of the Mexican economic variables during the 1980s. So, you know, when you are in the markets and you start watching CNBC all the time and you you know like you start learning basic economic lore, you start believing like oh, you know, the money supply and then you model it and then you raise the interest rate and then this happens and uh, you know, then you do this and then you do that and it's like oh, it's this pretty predictable system. It's like a it's like water in a bowl. But the thing is, they were modeling it, and there was no fucking logic to this. These indicators switched radically between periods of stability, turbulence, no warning, and no real reason. By generalization, I started to label a rare event as any behavior where the adage, beware of calm waters, can hold. Popular wisdom often warns of the old neighbor who appears to remain courtly and reserved, the model of an excellent citizen, until you see his picture in the national paper as a deranged killer who went on a rampage. Rare events are always unexpected, otherwise they would not occur. Do you know who Dennis Rader is? No, why? Oh, never mind. Okay, anyway, I was going to say, I hate to bring it up, it might be too soon, but an example of extreme rare events, high impact events impacting your life is, you know, usually filming a fitness commercial running is no big deal, but sometimes you run on train tracks. RIP to the great. Oh, rest in peace, Greg Plitt. It's almost too soon. soon. You know, do you know who Artemis Dolgan is? Uh, Okay. Hey, Jamie, pull it up. Pulling it up here. You guys can't see because we don't have video because I'm focusing all my fucking attention on making sales. But Jordy can see. So, Golden Aesthetics. Look at that. That's fucking physique goals, dude. That's, I mean, that's like physique goals for me. Uh, and he, he hosts this, this thing, Golden Aesthetics. But he, 
he actually and he's interviewed like he interviewed Tom Platts and he interviewed um, like a bunch of these people but he kind of dresses all stupid when he was an exotic dancer or whatever but he filmed a commercial sprinting and there was a train in the background close to him and then doing push-ups on the train tracks and he said R.I.P. Greg Plitt you'd think he would have fucking learned the lesson so if you guys don't know obviously everybody knows Greg Plitt you know, normality is what we people call living. We all call it death because of Greg Plitt. But um, yeah, he got killed filming a protein shake commercial uh, <laughs> by a train. Even though he's an army ranger. I don't like this Artemis guy. I was disrespectful of Greg Plitt. I think he was honoring him. But taking it back to Taleb, think of somebody involved in scientific research. So, you know, that's... That's the opposite. So day after day after day after day, you're going to be dissecting mice. You're going to be away from the rest of the world. You could try for years and years and years without anything to show for it. Your significant other might lose patience with the loser who comes home every night smelling of mice urine. Damn, dude. Until bingo. One day, you come up with the result. And so that's just contrasted with like, that's how, probably, that's how Taleb got rich. But everybody else is trying to like, oh, I'm going to pay a dollar, oh, make a dollar, make a dollar, make a dollar. Whatever. <laughs> the problem of induction. Okay, now we're moving into uh, a crazy fucking concept, which, you know, we explored a fair amount in the Black Swan. But, but dude, I feel like I didn't even understand anything in the Black Swan episode. And I actually understood that book like pretty decently. But I re-listened to our series and I was like, idiot, obviously it's this. Uh, so stick with us. These ideas take repetition, but now we discuss this problem viewed from the broader standpoint of the philosophy of scientific knowledge. It's a problem in inference well known as the problem of induction. It is a problem that's been haunting science for a long time, but hard, sciences, hard science has not been as harmed as the social sciences. Why? Because of the randomness content compounding its effects. Nowhere is the problem of induction more relevant than in the world of trading, and nowhere has it been as ignored. So, uh, I feel this magnetic pull to actually deeply understand Karl Popper's work, which fucking sounds so goddamn horrible because it's like 1930s insane scientific philosophy. But you know how many goddamn rich people have said that Karl Popper's ideas are like critical to understanding the fucking world? I even listened to it on Audible. I re refunded it. I listened to one of his um, like lectures, and it was fucking unintelligible. Uh, but I'm 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 gonna read his book, The Open Society, per Taleb. But the core of this is that no amount of observations of white swans can allow the inference that all swans are white. So think about that. I could see a billion white swans, and it doesn't tell me anything about if there's a fact if a black swan could exist the observation of a single black swan is sufficient to refute that conclusion so think about the disparity of that you know and this is where like everybody messes this up because you think like oh i've got all this evidence i'm collecting all this evidence like a crab and i have a billion i've talked to a, a trillion fucking white swans but all it takes is one black swan and that whole trillion is wrong yeah so it takes an infinite it, you can't it takes an infinite number of observations to confirm something's true 
but you can't but it only takes one observation to confirm something is false it's much easier to falsify something than it is to confirm something is true yeah i can use data to to disprove a position but never to prove one i can use history to refute a conjecture but never to affirm one and this seems like some pedantic fucking stupid decision but i think it's one of those like fabric of reality decisions like like this is critical to the world for instance the statement the market never goes down 20 percent in a given three-month period can be can be tested but is completely meaningless if verified so let's say you look at hey you know we we sampled every single day that we have data on for the entire market and we determined that the market never goes down more than 87 percent in a day and what taleb is saying is that it doesn't matter if you've sampled a hundred years a thousand years or a million years it it doesn't you know you can that that actually like that prediction actually is invalid and doesn't matter and you can quantitative you can quantitatively reject the proposition by finding counterexamples but it is not possible to accept it simply because in the past the markets never went down 20 percent so hey the markets we, we look the markets never go down more than 87 percent okay you actually can't do anything but if you see a day where the markets went down 80 88 percent then you know that like then you've just disproved it i'll give another concrete example so a lot of the people in the Bitcoin crypto space have observed that the Bitcoin price is something like 87, 90% correlated with the money supply of the United States. It's basically, if you tra- if you graph the money supply of the United States with the Bitcoin price, it's almost, it's close to one-to-one mirroring each other. So the natural inclination would be, oh, well, I'll just buy, put all of my money into Bitcoin when I see that the money supply is increasing and I'll sell when I see that when it's decreasing. That works, but the problem is, since one event can ruin your whole life, you put everything into Bitcoin, then Bitcoin gets hacked or some crazy black swan event like that. Guess what? It's suddenly completely uncorrelated for a day, so much so that you lose all of your money. And so it doesn't matter how long it's been correlated to the, the money supply. You just can't use that. But it's so tempting as an investor to see things, to see something like that and then be like, damn, we're, we're printing money again. I should probably buy more. Because the crazy thing is you're going to be right most of the time because it is correlated but over a thousand years of alternative history bitch that that thing is built on a house of sand and it only takes one bad version of that one time when that goes wrong to really ruin your life and then you get the stiletto heel on the dick another logical flaw in this type of statement is that it often that it is often when a large event takes place you hear man we just we just never thought that there'd be a tsunami that big. It's never happened before. As if it needed to be absent from the events past history for it to be a surprise. Why do we consider the worst case that took place in our own past as the worst possible case? You know, if you think about the last, you know, the last thousand years, but then you think about the million alternative histories of the potential last thousand years, my mind's gonna explode. The uh, think about like, okay, we're in this one alternative history, and in this one alternative history, the biggest tsunami was X. You're telling me that you you're gonna you're gonna build something that like if that's wrong, shitloads of people gonna die, because all it really tells us is that if the past 
by bringing surprises did not resemble the past previous to it, what I call the past's past, then why should our future resemble our current past? So I just said past a shitload, but what that basically means is like before the biggest flood of the last 1,000 years, nothing that big had ever happened before. And that's how everything happens. But I think you had a thought. Yeah, so the flood is a great segue because actually where I see this kind of thinking a lot and not to get controversial again for some people, but you see this thinking actually in a lot of people who advocate for trying to address the climate crisis because they'll do something like, we have to use science. We can't just use our feelings. We have to look at the data. And then they'll say, look, this hurricane... There were more hurricanes this year than the past this year than the past ten years. Therefore, the climate is changing for the worse, and our increased carbon dioxide is causing more extreme weather events. And my question was, well, how about if you look at the last hundred years? How do we know, know that that's just like a normal one in a hundred year sort of hurricane season? How do we know that that's not a normal one in a thousand year hurricane season? And I think I'm right because you actually can't tell the difference between, oh, this is getting worse because of whatever carbon or whatever, or this is a normal one in a thousand year hurricane season. Because think about how actually likely one in a thousand is, or one in 10,000, or one in a hundred thousand. We have 300 million people in the United States. We have 7 billion people total. If everybody had an app on their phone where one in 10,000 users would die, that's the most controversial thing that we've ever heard in the history of time. And so it's just the, you know, and I think he makes a good point that ties into this. He says, maximizing the probability of winning does not lead to maximizing the expectation from the game when one's strategy may include skewness. So if a small chance of a large loss and a large chance of a small win, if you engage in a Russian roulette type strategy with a low probability of a large loss, one that bankrupts you every several years, you are likely to show up as the winner in almost all samples, except in the one where you're dead. <sighs> well, that is, those are the philosophical ideas uh, that he has. And so what I mentioned is we're going to go through some of these biases that he talks about. And now Jordy and I are going to be pretty rude and dismissive. We've had some whiskey in our veins. Go listen to the Thinking Fast and Slow series to really uh, get into these biases. But, you know, I think it's important because, you know, he talks about what he was talking about before is almost like facets of the world or like tr uh, realities of how probability works. But to add insult to injury, probability is really fucking hard and nuanced and crazy. And, you know, it's a uh, 10,000 barrel revolver with one chamber that kills you. And that's just, that's a fact of the world. But it doesn't help that humans are really shitty at understanding probability. And we love to delude ourselves with, with biases. And so, Taleb starts it. He, he talks about how there's a successful lawyer. Works really hard. Taleb made a lot of dismissive comments about his work ethic because it's like, haha, what a peasant idiot. But he makes a million dollars a year. But he lives in New York City. And he lives in a nice neighborhood. You know, he's the poorest person in a nice neighborhood. And so all of his friends make $20 million a year. And his wife starts to see him as unsuccessful. But if you think about it, compare him to his high school classmates, he's incredibly successful. But compare him to all the people that live in his neighborhood, he's not th that successful. 
but everybody who lives in that neighborhood is survivorship bias. The highest performing people, you know, it's only the most successful people who move into the expensive neighborhood, thus the survivors. And so the first bias he's going to talk about is survivorship bias. And so I felt this a lot when I was a financial advisor because, you know, like a lot of that is you've got a two and a half year window where you got to pull something out of your asshole. Like gone are the days when you can just do cocaine at work and call people from five to eight at night. Everybody answers their phone. Voicemails don't even exist. So you have to answer your phone. You have a captive audience that has to talk to you or their house is ringing with a telephone and, and you've, you can't have a conversation. And so what I, um, what I learned though is that you know there's a lot of survivorship bias in that because the way that the team that I worked for became a dynasty was one of my advisors uh, went to a networking group and he was thinking like, yeah, you know, it's a little bit below my pay grade. But he went and he met a girl, asked her to lunch, kind of the network, I think. And she said, hey, my boyfriend, it works at this public company. Like, I know they're trying to do something with their 401k. Like, can you do that? And he's like, yes. And he bid the 401k of this public company. He won it and he didn't make any money for 10 years because he was just administering this 401k. No other big giant clients, no nothing. And then all the executives in the 401k started retiring and he started investing their money. And what's the lesson from that? Because you talk to a lot of advisors who really didn't critically think through their, you know, their path of success. And you say, hey, what do you do? What's the secret? What, you know, how are you successful? And they'd give you things like, you know, I brought donuts to a meeting. And we're like, that's a secret but in reality it's 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 the the retrofitting of an explanation to luck so i don't know if you've got any thoughts uh on survivorship bias or any examples so when we were talking about the what the russian roulette example we were talking about a negative outcome but actually that can be flipped into a positive outcome too if you play a game where hey there's a low chance but but high impact in a positive way, uh, probability of something good happening, right? Like, hey, every time I show up for a meeting, I go and shake everyone's hand. I meet everyone. I try to figure out how I can be helpful for all of these people in this meeting. Every meeting, there's a low chance that some crazy life-changing event happens, but guaranteed, if someone has that attitude over 30 years, good things are going to happen from him, from someone behaving in that way. What do you think? Yeah, man. Yeah. And, and I think... We'll talk about that on like the the difference between, uh, and I think we'll get we'll get there because on the difference between skill and luck. Because Taleb says, so are all the successful people just lucky? You know, are all those people like, well, I brought donuts to a meeting and now I make a million dollars a year? It's like, okay, man, that's you're lucky. And Taleb says, no, some people truly are successful. It just depends on the degree of randomness. So think of that dentist example. How much randomness is in being a dentist? Well, if somebody truly works on people's teeth, has done a thousand cavities, people come in, have tooth pain, leave, don't have tooth pain, and this dentist is having continuous good outcomes, 
it's pretty goddamn likely that that dentist is actually doing a good job and is actually an expert. But that's because there's not that much randomness in the profession known as dentistry. Compare that to a trader. If you know a trader could show up, a trader could you know ten years straight knocking it out of the park, and that's actually not correlated whatsoever to any skill. And he says, I can practically make the statement about anyone operating in the physical world or in a business in which the degree of randomness is low. Um, but there's a problem in anything related to the business world. I am bothered because tomorrow, unfortunately, I have an appointment with a fund manager seeking my help and that, and that of my friends in finding investors. He has what he claims is a good track record. All I can infer is that he has learned to buy and sell. And that's like what you were saying where there's actually no way to tell. There's no way to tell if, you know, like you can tell structurally how much randomness is this person exposed to and you can kind of guess that, oh, like a dentist, really not that much randomness. So if they're a successful dentist, like they're pretty successful. But fund manager, how much randomness are they exposed to? So fucking much. So it's almost like track record doesn't even matter. So let's get into it. We need to talk about the difference between what Taleb is saying, which is that luck is very, very involved in outcomes with what I think is that um, you can deterministically be successful. And so Alex Hormozy, uh, well, what a beast. So fucking jacked. I do think he, I know he's on TRT, so I feel a little fucking better. Um, but he wears a nose strip all the time because he doesn't give a fuck. When you have $100 million and a wife, you don't give a fuck. He has this thought experiment that success is is volume of rolling the dice, a volume of trying things, its number of sales calls, its number of at-bats, with the concept that each time you roll the dice, your skills get a little better. And then the compounding Venn diagram of your skills is growing and growing and growing until it's just deterministically guaranteed that if you roll the dice enough, you know, it's a 200-sided die, you roll it, and then now it's a 199-sided die, you roll it, now it's 198, and when it gets down to one side, you roll it, you win. And so, personally, and I'd be very curious your thoughts, I feel like Taleb is biased in coming at it from truly from probability as a trader, he's right. But if, if I'm here and I'm trying to be successful in the world, I think like, what is the degree of randomness I'm exposed to? A fair amount, you know, like being a sales rep, that's a fair amount of randomness. You know, it's not like the level of guaranteed that if I'm a welder that I can go, or like if I drive Uber, that I can be, you know, that I'm the concept of a driver. Like I'm pretty sure I mean, ignore self-driving cars, uh, but like, I'm pretty sure that's going to, that's you know not exposed to that much randomness right now. I could drive Uber. I could find work. So I feel like the average person is somewhere in the middle. And I think you can offset a lot of that randomness by just at bats and getting more and more skilled until it's more like what he was describing initially with Nero, where I can be pretty sure I'm going to be successful, but wildly successful is almost totally due to randomness. But thoughts? Yeah, I think what he means by skill, what Taleb means by skill could also just be said in a way like 
increase your geometric mean because that's what that means. High skill is be, would be higher geometric a- average and luck would be potentially a high or low, I guess, arithmetic average. But if, because the only way to have a high geometric mean is to be skilled because that means more often over a long period of time, most of your, your potential histories, your potential outcomes are good. So like if you're a caveman and you're just exceptionally good at fighting, that raises your geometric average. Whereas like you might get lucky one time. Oh, you don't have to fight. Oh, but if you're just savagely good at fighting and you're a caveman and there's no rule of law and you have the monopoly on violence, what you're saying is that you can be, you'll be successful. Carry a gun, folks. That's what Jordy said. You heard it here. Well, we just shouted about a bunch of stuff, so I hope it was valuable. We're winding this whore down. We're going to finish off with non-linearity. Next, I put the platitude that life is unfair under some examination, but from a new angle. The twist, life is unfair in a non-linear way. This chapter is about how a small advantage in life can translate into a highly disproportionate payoff, or more viciously, how no advantage at all, but a very small help from randomness can lead to a bonanza. First, let's define nonlinearity. There are many ways to present it, but one of the most popular ones in science is what is called the sand pile effect, which I can illustrate as follows. He says, I'm currently sitting on a beach in Copabanga, Rio de Janeiro, attempting to do nothing strenuous, away from anything to read and write, unsuccessfully, of course, as I'm mentally writing these lines. So he's trying to chill. He's like, okay. I, I know I feel the itch to kill, but I will not kill someone for at least a week. Let me go to Brazil, find another wife. I guess I'll sit on the beach, but he's getting so goddamn pissed because he's like, what am I supposed to do? I already did interval sprints in the ocean. Do I just get hammered? I guess I'll build a fucking sandcastle. So he's playing with plastic beach toys he borrowed from some kid trying to build a sandcastle. In time, much to the onlooking child's delight, my castle collapses to rejoin the rest of the sand on the beach. It could be said that the last grain of sand is responsible for the destruction of the entire structure. What a fucking good example. What we are witnessing here is a nonlinear effect from a linear force exerted on an object. A very small additional input, a grain of sand causes a disproportionate result so you're building a sandcastle that's gonna and then it collapses the craziest fucking thing is there was a point before which the castle did not collapse and then one actually legit it has to be one grain of sand more caused it to collapse so in i think 2008 lehman brothers hit an all-time high right before it went bankrupt yeah yeah it's like you're you oh look oh it's it's so good and then one more grain of sand like fuck so um i think that but like what he's describing so he he describes the q the qwerty uh like how our keyboard is laid out right now so if you if you know how to type you know that it took a shitload of time to figure out how to type why well because it hit this critical mass and just by chance our keyboard layout is shitty it's universal like imagine if it was just like the alphabet laid out in some alphabetical way and you could look but it's like where's the q ah i don't fucking know 
And so it's, it, you know, that like that is a winner take all event. Like you got a little bit ahead and then now you have a shitty keyboard. But I wanted to, I wanted to bring up, uh, like I think that idea of winner take all is non-intuitive, but I think very important. And so I've been at my job coming up on two years. Uh, in like 41 days, it'll be two years. My non-solicit is up and the great migration begins. Um, but I went from kind of a cert. I went, I went from running sales at the past company I was at to getting triple demoted and having to humble myself as COVID kicked off and, and just learn how to be an SDR, like a meeting booking bitch. But it's a skill. I learned the skill, got really good at shooting guns. I didn't work that hard. And then I found myself at this new place where I could do a sales job, but I was selling data analytics. And it's at this big giant company. And I looked around and I'm like, I know where I came from. And we were growing fast as fuck, net new into the market. Just like calling people, trying to convince strangers, hey, do you need any data analytics? And we were growing 300%. My new company is an accounting company and it's got hundreds over a hundred thousand clients and so i looked at it and i was like if we could grow that fast talking to strangers imagine how fast we could grow talking to people who trust us and i was the first sales rep and now we've got a team of four where we're like hitting these critical masses but i, I looked around and i'm like this is a winner take all environment if i can step in and i can just like learn this shit i'm just gonna buckle down i'm gonna fucking learn this like that could be the thing that got me that tiny head start that now I'm ahead and now I'm like successful and now I'm a partner and now I go to a different firm and now I'm, you know, you know, whatever. But it's, it was like that three month period where it was fight or flight actually was the thing that caused me 20 years from now to be successful. And I looked at that, I recognized it and I was just like, go, but I don't know, Jordy. Do you have any examples of winner take all of how a tiny head start and then just running has helped you in your life? I'll give an example first of the counter example of a tiny head start in the negative way can ruin your life. So unfortunately, some of the saddest data that comes out of psychology is that uh, if you're not, if a child is not socialized, like well socialized by the time he is three years old, it's like basically like he can never catch up because once you hit four, well, then if you're not socialized and the kids don't want to play with you, then you don't get skills like the social skills needed to play with kids when you're five. And I would say a martial arts class is the uh, the antidote to that. But that takes a lot of forming on the wet clay. I remember there was a kid who shit on the floor when I was an instructor. He's a real person now that people that I know are still friends with. And I'm like, hey, that kid that shit on the floor. They're like, no, he's an engineer. Right. Well, it took a lot of extra effort to get him to that point. But I think there is actually some, some people that are so bad off that it's like, you can never catch up because you, you never, you never get ahead. This is why actually having, having a hundred dollars is way better than having zero dollars versus like a hundred versus a thousand, you know, it's better. But the difference between having a hundred thousand dollars versus a thousand dollars is way smaller than the difference between having a hundred dollars and zero dollars. Cause that's zero. Well, it's like you can't even get close to then go to a job interview to get a job. Like you're, you're way behind. Yeah. Let's even say you're homeless and you don't even have a shower, exactly. you know, like, and you can't afford uh, you know, uh, YMCA. Like, what do you, what do you do? So, 
Um, I think, you know, if you look at it, uh, I know I promised on the 80-20 principle that one day I would cover chaos theory, but I'm still too stupid to understand. But that's the, that's kind of the theme of like, if you think, if you've heard of the butterfly effect, it's a flap of the wings, uh, you know, in Japan causes a hurricane in California. And so that winner take all is just another example of um, the asymmetric environment that we're in. And so he goes on and he talks about a lot of different biases. Um, who fucking cares? Just like try your best to not be an irrational human and go listen to the Thinking Fast and Slow series. And now he's going to walk into closing how to live. This part, the conclusion of this book, presents the human aspect of dealing with uncertainty. I've personally failed in achieving a general insulation from randomness but I've managed a few tricks. He's like, hey, I'm a grizzled old guy. Listen up. And the point here is that we want to ruthlessly shackle ourselves to the path of reason and probabilistic thinking when the decisions matter. But he's saying we're also flawed humans. You know, if somebody, if somebody sells 35 pound weights, block them on Twitter. Because God damn it, weights come in 25s and 45s. We like drinking wine. We like unprotected sex. Sometimes we, we want to eat a bunch of spicy stuff, slam a five-hour energy, take a shot of hard liquor, and then shoot guns under realistic, stressful conditions. Maybe in certain times like that, we should just do it. We should do it for the soul. So story time. Taleb was in his 20s. He was a trader. He got a cab to work. And he says, cab drivers in New York City are known to be rather untamed and universally unfamiliar with the geography of the place. So imagine, what's the one thing they need to know how to do? Know where they're going. And he's just like, hey, I don't know, my friend. But on occasion, one can find a cab driver who is both unacquainted with the city and skeptical of the universality of the laws or of arithmetic. I don't even know what that means, Celeb. So basically, Taleb got picked up by an illiterate guy who doesn't know his way around. He's trying to get to fucking work on time. And he got dropped off on the wrong side of the building. He went in the, in the other exit. And that day, he made considerable profits. It was the best day in his young career. He says the next day going into work, he had this weird urge to get dropped off at the other entrance. When he looked at his reflection in the elevator's mirror, it dawned on him he wore the exact same tie as the day before. There was someone in me who visibly believed in a strong causal link between my use of the other entrance, my choice of tie, and the previous day's market behavior. Do you ever play Pokemon growing up? So I developed what I, th I heard, like, you know, back before there was the internet, it was like some friend at school would say something that was pretty close to true and then you would try it out but then like your whole friend group kind of like started to believe it and then it just became true. That it just becomes like fact. And so I thought that when catching a Pokemon, you could throw a Pokeball and you could hold A on a Game Boy. You could hold A into the left and if you held A into the left, it would increase the likelihood you'd catch it. And it became this thing where, like, I, I it was such a superstition that I just had to fucking do it. And Taleb saying, 
something's going on. We're people. We want to do it. You know, it's these gamblers ticks. Uh, and he had the same thing. His most successful day, he was dropped off at a different entrance. Maybe he should do that. And, you know, I'll, I'll take it from that, which, by the way, I used to do the exact same Pokemon move. Uh, I used to do the same thing. So it spread further than just your your friend group, which is crazy. Are you serious? I learned that in Alabama. Where did you, you grew up in Indiana? Indiana and North Carolina. Yeah, so I, same thing. Um, but anyway, but yeah, I think his point is like some things are worth taking that kind of risk just for the soul, you know? I mean, for Pokemon, it's one thing, but he, I would say all the way up to going to war. The geometric return of going to war is low. But sometimes you have to do, you just have to do what you have to do. Today I was um, driving into work a different entrance, a different a different route than I usually do because I grabbed breakfast with this guy because like we were kind of at, you know like mortal enemies, but we worked through it. Uh, but I grabbed breakfast with a guy, and I uh, was driving the way of the Keystone Fashion Mall, and I typically don't go that way to work, and. I remember I had a flashback to like six years ago when I drive that way to work every day and there'd be homeless people at this one exit. And I just was like, not in a mean way, but I I thought they could probably like they would be with me. I always had metal music so fucking loud and I was priming my psychology to go into work. And I I, uh, was driving into work today and I was like, man. And I had metal music up so loud, and I was like, get your head in the game, get ready, it's fucking time to go in. And does that matter? I don't know. I don't think it probably does. How correlated is that to me being successful at work? I don't know. But like Taleb is saying, do it for the soul. That's part of my ritual. That's part of my routine. Hold A into the left when you catch a Pokemon. Because being a hero does not necessarily mean such an such an extreme act as getting killed in battle or taking one's own life it's grace under pressure recall that the epic heroes were judged by their actions not by the results dress your best on your execution day try to leave a good impression on the death squad by standing erect and proud try not to play the victim when diagnosed with cancer hide it from others and only share the information with the doctor <laughs> what that's weird. In addition, the dignified attitude will make both defeat and victory feel equally heroic. Be extremely courteous to your assistant when you lose money instead of taking it out on them as many of the traders who I scorn routinely do. Try not to blame others for your fate, even if they deserve blame. Never exhibit any self-pity, even if your significant other bolts with the handsome ski instructor. Are you okay, Taleb? Do not complain. The only article Lady Fortuna has no control over is your behavior. Fuck, what a good point. Good luck. Nero, a couple years later, after we left him looking at John smoking a cigarette, Nero's skepticism ended up paying off. He made a trade, he got super rich, but he started to engage in excess. He bought a helicopter. Nero's excessive probability consciousness in his profession somehow did not register fully in his treatment of physical risk. For Nero's helicopter crashed as he was landing it near Battersea Park on a windy day. He was alone in it. In the end, the black swan got its man. Holy shit. 
Dude, this series has been years in the making. What started long ago on the Black Swan episode, and even before that, when Jordy and I would meet at Buffalo Wild Wings, drink beer, and yell about probability, has reached a form of a culmination. And my priests, you all have the same resources as us. Go read all his books, The Black Swan, Skin of the Game, Anti-Fragile, and now Fooled by Randomness. In Jordy and my infinite kindness, we suffered for you and have distilled these books to their most critical points. And now, can I sit here and say I understand everything here? That, that Jordy and I are equal to Taleb? No. But as Mr. Taleb himself told us, the only thing Lady Fortuna can't control is our behavior. If you want Kusemono results, you must do Kusemono shit. And so, as we wind this yarn down, we're going to end where we began, paying homage to noted wolf hunter, boxer, lifter, and president of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. So his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Women. And that's my pretties is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out at curiouslydisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.